Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Seth Hyatt, founder of Mayday Games and Imperial Publishing, best known for their brand of Sleeve Kings and their first game, Red Outpost. Seth has completed over 40 successful Kickstarter projects and launched his newest game, Poetry Slam, on the platform this week. Seth, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I am doing great. I was just saying before we went on air here, I'll be shocked if we can get through everything I want to ask you in 30 minutes. <laughs> you have so much experience in this industry. Um, I, I'm very thankful to have you on the podcast and we'll see how much we can get through. Sure. So 10 years in the industry, where did it begin? Did it begin with the sleeves? Did it begin with the board, with the board games? Where did you kind of start? So I started Mayday Games in 2011 as a corporation. And uh, really in 2008, I started just selling some products. So my very first product was a Settlers of Catan board, like a board that you put the game Catan. You know, back then it was just the tiles and you didn't have the, the border and stuff. Yeah. And so we were selling this board that I made in China, this cardboard board. And then um, about, that, about that same time, Dominion came out and this guy named Craig Borden, I still remember his name. He emailed me and said, hey, you guys are Mayday Games. So the idea of Mayday was if someone has a product they want to have made, you send us a Mayday and we create it. So we started doing Animeeple tokens for Agricola back in the day because we were there only with squares for the, the token, the sheeples and cows and everything and yeah. Agricola. Well, this guy, Craig Borden, emailed us and said, hey, you should make these weird sliced sleeves for this game called Dominion that just came out. And I'm like, oh, I have Dominion. I played it. 500 cards, great, but it shuffles like mad and you're going to run ruin your cards. Yeah. But no one had made that size 59 by 92 millimeter sleeve before. It didn't exist anywhere. So I'm like, okay, we'll call that Euro sized. And then we made that packaging and made that size. And that was our first product. And then we made a thicker version. And then little by little, we started finding all these other strange and wonderful size sleeves that Mayday started rolling out with. And now we've got like 40 sizes and two different thicknesses and just kind of went from there. But we still do some accessories and tokens and things. And we since have done a bunch of games, we've probably done 30 games in the last 10 years. So just kind of started into it from there. But 2011 so was our first Kickstarter. And this, so it started off then on, on the kind of accessory side, not yeah, on the board game side. Yeah, just accessories and sleeves is all it was. Yeah, so, my first Gen Con in 2008 was a, uh, was just uh, accessories and some sleeves. And were you have you been in the board game industry for like many years before? Like what were you no. doing before so, that, before you got into it? So I actually graduated with an MBA and an accounting degree. I have a CPA. And okay. I was I, in 2001, I left my accounting industry job and started selling on eBay. 2001 to 2008, I sold full-time on eBay selling other people's products. So I was a licensed distributor for Ruby's costumes and for like Star Wars Master Replicas uh, stuff. And of course, there were board games in there. There's just a, any geek item I was interested in, right? Yeah. And I have a small little um, board game shop too. But I hated people coming to my shop and I didn't have anything to supersize them with. You know, like, you want fries with that? Well, you can't do that in the, in the industry. So I was always looking for accessories I could buy that had more margin to increase my revenue. And uh, that's kind of how it, how it all started. But in 2008, I switched from selling other people's products on eBay to selling my own products, which has ended up being a really good thing. Now, have you played board games your whole life? Like, has board games always been a passion, though, before you kind of started getting into the accessories? Yeah. Or is it just a happy coincidence? I grew up playing, you know, the usuals, Risk, Monopoly, all that garbage, Stratego, chess. I love that stuff. But then I remember I went to a camp out with my sons, and I want to say it was 2000, 2001 or 1999, and I started playing. Uh, I played Settlers of Catan for the first time. And I really liked it. And I started playing Catan and took it to ride and 
got into Power Grid and Memoir 44 and a whole bunch of those old school classic Euro games, right? Yeah. And uh, then Dominion came out and just a lot of those. So I've, I kind of was always in the industry because I like games, but then I got into it more for the business of it, you know, I just decided <laughs> to create this crazy thing. So. And then, so the sleeves that you're doing at Mayday, um, now was that, that was different than Sleeve Kings, was it? Sleeve yes, Kings was different? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So Mayday was starting, it started in 2011. And then in 2018, my then wife and I of 24 years, unfortunately got divorced yeah. and she was 49% owner of Mayday. And there was some dispute there on how that was going to work. And uh, I was paying alimony, child support, some business payments, but I'm like, this isn't, I want to keep doing this, mm -hmm. but I don't want to give all of my labor to her half of it for the rest of my life. So any new products I have coming out, yeah. starting in uh, late 2018, I started putting in this new company I started by myself called Imperial Publishing. And that's where Sleeve Kings came in. So that started in 2018 at the end of 2018. Now, is there a difference between the sleeves? Like I noticed, I saw a video online where you're trying to like rip a sleeve up apart you, you can't yeah you, you can't so, break the sleeve so what was the, yeah, so, the story there so mayday games has uh, their standard sleeves are 40 microns thick that's the thickness and then their premium sleeves are 90 microns thick so sleeve kings are 60 microns thick so they're 50 percent thicker than mayday standard but they're 33 percent thinner than mayday premium so they're kind of right in the middle and they're about the same price point as the mayday standard so they're they're thicker they feel more premium but they're also 110 per pack instead of 100 and about the same price point so it's just a different kind of line. And I just, just wanted to make sure that it was a totally new company, new factory, new everything, built the whole thing from scratch with new logistics partners and distribution, all that. So uh, totally different. And then this, we just recently, last week, we finished our sleeve uh, campaign on Kickstarter for our premium sleeves, which instead of the 90 micron stick for Mayday, these are hundred micron stick. Wow. And they're 55 per pack instead of 50. So that's our premium line for sleeve. So now we have four different thicknesses of sleeves. <laughs> and like all these different sizes. So it's getting confusing. Yeah. But everyone likes them for different reasons. There seems to be a market for both. So, you know, back when you first started doing sleeves, I'm sure you weren't the only person doing sleeves for cards, right? Or, or no, were you? Yeah. No, no yeah. we weren't. So, well, Ultra Pro and uh, I remember FFG had, had announced they were going to do something. They hadn't done them yet. But Ultra Pro was the big player in the industry. They were already in Walmart and selling them. You know, if you go to the Magic the Gathering or the baseball card sleeves, you'll see them there. But I remember my first... Uh, my very first Gen Con in 2008, I remember the Ultra Pro guys coming over and going, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm just selling these little sleeves. They're like, do you do much volume in that? I'm like, stay away, please. I'm like, nope. And they're like, well, are you planning on doing the same size we do, the 63 and a half by 88, the ones that everybody does, the penny sleeves or whatever? I'm like, how about this? How about you stay out of that, out of my market with these weird sizes and I'll stay out of your market with those sizes. We won't even compete. And we shook hands on it and he said, deal. And then that lasted about six months before they started making sleeves the same size we were. <laughs> so then I started making the same size they are. So it's fine. I mean, you can't, you can't copyright a dimension of a plastic piece of plastic, right? So what are you going to do? And and but, did you try to like, I guess in a, in a case like that, when you're coming in and someone else is already, you know, you're coming in as a third guy in or fourth guy in, how did you carve out your piece? Like how did you differentiate yeah. yourself or how did you kind of stand out so, amongst that crowd so it mostly started with us doing all these different sizes like now it's the sizes we invented i remember me and my wife at the time on the kitchen table saying okay this little sleeve what are we going to call that we'll call that mini usa okay we'll call this one mini euro and then i remember we got our first batch of sleeves in which were the 57 by 89 which are the standard usa well um ffg fantasy flight had said that their their cards were all that size 57 by 89 but oh, 56 by 89 let me see what they are 56 by 87. Sorry, that's the standard USA. We got a bunch of men and people started complaining. They don't fit Fantasy Flight games. Well, Fantasy Flight has been lying all along on the size of their, their <laughs> cards. They're all a millimeter and a half longer and taller. 
So I either had to refund a bunch of people and cancel it, or I had to come up with a new size. So I made another one that's just slightly bigger. That's a millimeter and a half larger than the USA standard. They're called Chimera. If you Google Chimera, the first, it's a, it's just another name for fantasy. Yeah. That's what Chimera. So the Chimera size, it's like basically fantasy flight is what we're telling people. So that's how that size came into being. And we just started making up new names for them whenever we had another size, just call them, you know, whatever. whatever Lesson learned on uh, theoreticals. Eh? You always want to take that card and to stick it in the it. sleeve. Yep. A lot of we, people give you bad information and you don't know until you try it. So yeah, it's crazy. It reminds me of uh, back in my previous life. Uh, I used to work with a, a food manufacturer and uh, we were making packaging for hot dogs that were, you know, single uh-huh. serve. And all the engineer guys came and said, okay, here's your, here's the size of the box to hold the hot dogs and the additional packaging. Mm-hmm. But it was all based on theoretical. No one actually took the hot <laughs> dogs and the- folded them over top of each other, which created a bunch yeah. of air pockets. And as they're stuffed them in these boxes, you had all these boxes that- tearing as an absolute disaster. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, lesson uh, learned always try yeah. to test it in a practical uh in a, in a practical yeah. way measure twice cut once yeah exactly have you guys been able to um tie in with any other um like board game companies in advance of them coming with their games and say look oh, hey yeah. guys you know yeah we've done a lot of that in fact we have a lot of people that go on kickstarter and they'll reach out to us and say hey we want to do sleeves one recent one was with ryan lockett with uh, red red robin uh, red mm-hmm. red, red rising red no uh, Ryan Lockett's company. I'm forgetting the name of it. Red something. Sorry, Ryan. Anyway, uh, he had a new game coming out, which is called, geez, anyway, I can't remember one of his most popular games. And I'm just drawing a blank. Anyway, he was like, Hey, we want to make sleeves for this. And so we partnered with him. We're like, Hey, we'll just slap our logo on there with yours. We'll help you design the art. And then we actually OEM those in our factory, sent them to his factory in China and sent them out together with his games for fulfillment. We've done that with a lot of games. I mean, a lot, some of them, we actually have agreements. We can't tell you, but I've had some, you know, six, uh, seven and eight figure games that we've done the sleeves for yeah. that they represent as their own sleeves, but they're actually ours, which is fine. I'm happy to take their money. So, yeah. but we, we put it with all of our products. So we get a really good volume discount on the price and it's just more margin. Any company that doesn't have, it does more than a thousand copies. It's just free margin for them. So I was just looking at tiny Epic dungeons and they have, if you look on their Kickstarter pledge manager, one of their things on there is our sleeve pack. So, and it's, you know, labeled Mayday. It's just a Mayday branded sleeve. That's for tiny Epic. Side. And I guess for the users too, it's got to be better for them because they can, they're not going to pay the shipping twice, right? They can just yeah, include exactly. it in their game as it gets fulfilled. They pay the shipping once sleeve comes and, uh, and they can put some love and care around those, uh, those uh, yeah. precious cards. Yeah. It's a good deal for everybody. And a lot of people want to make sure that they're one of the most frequent questions on Kickstarter is, will this game fit sleeves back in the box? You know, everyone's always, that's always on the FAQ on almost every Kickstarter now. I just got so, hit with that a, a week and a half ago. Somebody said, okay, have you just, you know, I'm looking at your picture of your organized box organization, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the standard Insert. sleeve on these cards is going to fit. Yep. I'm glad they asked the question because of course, this is just, these are just prototypes. So we're going to finalize yeah. everything. And what I'm going to do is I'm yeah. literally going to get the deck. I'm going to sleeve the deck and we're going to measure it to make sure it actually fits. Uh, in well, the pocket, if, any, so. if you or any other designer or person on Kickstarter is launching the campaign wants to just shoot me, hit me up with an email and I'll send you a free pack of sleeves for that size. You can check them. No problem oh, there we go. All right. There's a, there's, there's a plug. Well, maybe I get those yeah. included with uh, some nice squirrels in the, in the coming weeks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's really easy to do. So, so let's yeah. talk a little bit about your new uh, Kickstarter, Poetry Slam. Now this, I'm going to share my screen, so don't be startled as sure. the screen changes. Um, so walk us through this game. This this is a, a relaunch. Um, uh, I guess you tried this a couple of years ago. It, it didn't mm-hmm. fund. So yep. now you're coming, uh, I guess maybe the environment is more appropriate now for party games and things like that. Um, walk us through this game. What's Poetry Slam all about? So so the game was designed and made. Uh, we actually kind of finished everything in 2018. We're ready to go with it. We launched on Kickstarter, just never did very well. 
And we had all these stretch goals at you know pretty high numbers. We were very optimistic. And we've done, like you said, over 40 projects that are successful. So we kind of knew what you're doing. It's a well laid out campaign. But for some reason, it just didn't hit the right spot with, with um, backers. I don't know why, but it didn't do very well. So we canceled it. So we're like, well, we have this idea. We've already paid for the art. We've got the files. Everything's ready to go. What are we going to do with this game? I don't want to just launch it into the world sight unseen and hope that distributors buy it. So what we decided to do was unlock all the stretch goals, throw everything in there like we had planned for the Kickstarter, and then just sell it at cost. So the Kickstarter is five bucks if you want the deluxe, all the stretch goals un uh, unlocked. So you get like foil cards, foil box, a special pencil, double-sided scoring uh, pad, uh, nine and 10 player. That, see, it says 20,000 there. So you can get, you get all that stuff with it. The standard game is three bucks. The premium is five. You just pay us the shipping and we'll send it to you. So it's really a total experiment to try to seed the market and see if sending out 2,000 copies of this game is going to uh, build demand for us to, to reprint it and get into distribution or not. So, but the reviews have all been done. It's everybody seems to like the game. It's doing pretty well on kicks on a BGG. People review it pretty well reviewed. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we just have like, I think we have a thousand copies of the, of the of the limited edition and then like six or 700 of the premium or of the standard. So, so and, and the, the gist of the game is that I guess people are drawing um, uh, letters and they have to come up with, a poem, I guess, like a, a two sentence poem, like a rhyming two sentence yeah. rhyme that contain yeah. that letter. And then people have to try to guess what the word is. Is that kind of the essence yeah, of the game? Or? So like, let's say that you have uh, an M on your board, you have to, then you choose a word like moon and you'd be mm. like, uh, once a month when the, it is night, this comes out and bears some light. I don't know. Something, I don't know. I'm terrible with poems, but anyway, gotcha. it's something like that. That's and then if someone good. can guess it, that's pretty good for on the fly. But if, <laughs> if someone can guess it, then, uh, you then you get points and then they get points for guessing it and whoever guesses first gets points and you also have these snap cards or snap tokens that you have to give people to, to like give them props for if they did a good poem stuff like that so that's awesome it's, it's, got, a, it's a really it, fun game it's, it's a it's a good one it's, and it's up to 10 players with the expansion stuff that's in there so. i love the whole beatnik theme to it too is pretty uh is pretty cool yeah, and the, we a, guys designed the page. How it's all, you know, all the the groovy and and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah, it's uh, definitely the beatnik feel. Feel the video kind of has encapsulates that as well. But it's already funded. It's doing well. We only have a, a literally a thousand copies, so I think it'll actually sell out before we get to the ten days on it because it's a ten day campaign. Yeah, and, I can see uh, that. You're you're already at three hundred thirty eight backers. I mean, right from yeah. when we started talking to when I shared my screen, you added another six backers. So yeah, I mean, it's coming along. It's going to crawl up there. You're seeing backers coming pretty quick. Um, it, you know, it's one of these things with Kickstarter, right? That um, is, people always say, well, what kind of games fund, right? It's got to be D&D &D, or it's got to be an RPG gotta have game. Some minis. minis, you got to have the minis. But man, you'll see games that are party games that, that'll fund really well. I mean, as I know I said last week, but Doomlings just did an, an insanely well. Um, your last Kickstarter was Crokino. Yeah. Crokino. Yeah. <laughs> and it did this over $40,000. It's been in 1998 or 1898, right? So a little older game from Canada, right? Yeah. That, that blew me away that a game yeah. like Crokino, um, where you, you, you've you created kind of, I guess, like um, a premium wood edition of it, but it's still Crokino, right? And yeah. and that yeah. funded over $300,000. Yeah. I, I, I was shocked to see that. And I think what that to me is, is an indication that it's not necessarily that there's a type a game that um, is is successful in Kickstarter or not. It's really honing in on getting to the right audience for yeah. the game, right? So, yeah, we've done. Uh, I think that this is our fifth or sixth Kickstarter for Crokinole that we've done over the years. Yeah, 
So it's kind of established for us, but really what happened this time was shut up and sit down did a review of Crokinole that's got almost a million views on um, YouTube. And it like, it kind of got a little viral for our industry. It's pretty viral. And so yeah. I think that helped us a lot. Just people that are more aware of the game and him saying, you know, for 250 bucks, it's a tough choice, but I'd still buy one. And then we come along with a $99 Kickstarter. It's like, well, that's a no brainer. So it did much better than we expected. Usually they do 60, 80 grand. And that one, we ended up doing four containers of those to the US. It's crazy. Now, one thing I've seen is that um, with your different campaigns, and I wasn't able to go through all 55 of them, but I, 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 have, I did go three through, hours to burn, huh? say like the last 10. Um, yeah. you, you seem to have arrived at a very much of a template uh, on your Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaigns. Um, is this something that's just kind of worked out that way? Or have you guys consciously started templating out, okay, this next Kickstarter we know these certain things work in this order and we need to have a kind of, it's almost formulaic. Is that something you guys it's, have done conscientiously? Uh, we've definitely done it consciously because we've tried, I've looked at what other people have done that have been successful, like Tiny Epic do a ama- Gameland does amazing. Michael and Nathan have a great team over there and they yeah. do really well, but I look at what they do and try to emulate things that other successful people do to the extent I can. But the other thing is Kickstarter isn't just a pre-order page and it's not just a, a funding a dream thing, but it's really more of a pitch, you know, and To me, when I look at a pitch, I want to know why I should do this now. It's like, so the very first thing in all of our projects is why back now? There's got to be a carrot there on why you should back this now rather than waiting for retail or taking a chance on a game that's not going to, who knows if it's going to come through. You don't know, you know, I backed uh, the coolest cooler and I lost my 300 bucks and never got the cooler. So people are taking a risk. So we have why back now? Then we have kind of the the how to play. Then we have an explanation of what's in, in each pledge level. And then we have the reviews. And you have, you know, the risks and it's just, you know, shipping all that, but it's in a kind of a certain order. And we try to just do that every time, but it seems to be the, the quickest way to, people are going to make that decision generally pretty fast. And sometimes they only just look at the top of the page and go, okay, I'm back in it, you know, or they watch the video. So for a company like you, that obviously has a, a very large portfolio, right? Um, and most of these games I think are designed to not just be on Kickstarter, but then be on um, your page and, and through distributors uh-huh. and so forth, you know, sure. afterwards. And the stores. Yeah. So some, you know, I see some people when they do a campaign, they'll say, you know, one reason to back us is, is because it's exclusive to Kickstarter. You know, you can only get yeah. this on Kickstarter. That's why you need to back, but you guys can't say that. So what is the main hook for, for most of your games as to why people should back now versus just wait for this to come out on your, your page? It really depends on the game. Like with Crokinole, it came down to price point, you know, the Crokinole mm-hmm. retails for 175, but if you buy it on Kickstarter, you get it for 99. And we just do that once a year or sometimes less, sometimes more, usually once a year. And then that's the only time you can buy it at that price, like nowhere near that on any other place from us. And then uh, other games, it's like limited exclusivity content. Sometimes there's some of that too. Uh, It just really depends on the game. Like with our uh, first game for Imperial Publishing, Red Outpost, we had a a limited edition version that's only going to be available for Kickstarter. And, you know, it had a lot of uh, extra bonus stuff and deluxified content and, you know, the foil box and the limited edition cover. We try to really make that thing nice and to give the backers a good value because it's the only way you're going to get that version is through the Kickstarter. But we still will launch a regular version to retail and you can still buy that version if you want. But we're going to always offer it to uh, distribution to get our friendly local game stores out there to be able to take the game and sell it because we want to we support them as well. Another thing I've noticed uh, across a number of your campaigns is uh, fixed price points. So, you know, I see this... Um, you know, almost like price bans on your page. So as you said, the Crokinole hundred dollars, um, I seen a number of your campaigns where you're in around the $25 range or $22 range. Mm-hmm. So why is that important to you guys as a company to kind of hit some of these, these key price points in Kickstarter? 
it's not so much Kickstarter's price point as the kind of game we want to sell's price point. So mm. when we're at like Gen Con or Origins or some other convention selling, a lot of these companies have these big booths with like, you know, they sit there and play an hour and a half at the convention table playing a game for 90 minutes or more. And then maybe they'll sell a copy or two, or maybe they won't, but it's a lot of bandwidth tied up and we're a smaller company. So we like to have our booth set up where we have these small, simple games. You can explain them in two to three minutes and you can play them in five to 10 minutes. So it's a kind of the casual board game revolution kind of theory where if you walk by our booth, you'll see us playing whatever game that is. And you'll be like, oh, that's get bit. I can see how that's played just by looking over your shoulder or whatever, whatever game we have. And so I would much rather at our booth be able to just let families come in and just see things casually and see them. But then the game sells itself too, because it's not a complicated brain buster. And it's a, it's a good intro into the, the world of board gaming. So um, a lot of other companies have good days on Gen Con. Thursday's okay, Friday's okay, Saturday's really good, and Sunday's okay. Ours is like the other way around. It gets better every day. And by the family day on Saturday and Sunday, we have like our best sales, just because all of our games are generally geared to the $23 price point kind of impulse purchase. And something that if you give me 30 seconds, I can explain the game to you and you can make a decision right there. You don't have to play the game all the way through. You get the gist of it. You, you grasp the kind of the experience you're going to have with the game and then you can make a decision or not. But I, I swear, I think we outsell people because of that, because, you know, we can explain a game and move on. And I'm, I'm, I'm only selling, you know, $20 games, but I'm selling one of them a minute sometimes at some of the busier times, whereas <laughs> these other companies, I mean, I'm, they have lines around the block too, but they're selling a hundred dollar game. So I don't know. I'm sure people are probably down. loading up for Christmas too, right? You buy a handful yeah. of games and, and away they go. Yeah, for sure. And you have a number of, uh, uh, people you've published on behalf of, I guess. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? So I think Hobby yeah. World of One and there's yeah. a couple so different like, brands. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we a game, if we get a game, say like uh, Dead Man's Draws, one of our more popular games, we have the license for that worldwide. And so we license it. Well, we, we produce it and sell it in the US primarily. We ship it to distributors in the UK, Australia, places like that. But we also license those games to other countries. Like it's made in China and Taiwan and Japan and uh, you know Germany and Spain. But then we also get like games, we're always on the lookout for games from other countries to license to the US. So like you said, um, Hobby World doesn't have a presence in the US. So they're trying to license their games um, to the US. And of course they've had a great success with a lot of their games, but um, we've done well with some of theirs. And then there's another one called Lifestyle is another one out of Russia that we just seem to do a lot with. Um, for whatever reason, the Russian games seem to resonate with us. I don't know why, but uh, it just comes down to what games we see that we like that people are willing to license at a reasonable fee. So. Now, do you guys take it in case we're bringing a, a game from another country? Is there often a lot of translation and things need to be done or does it come pretty much ready to go? It totally depends on the game, but generally they've already done a good translation to pitch the game to English speaking countries. And most okay. games, when they come out, if they're in Russia, if they think there's international appeal, they'll go ahead and translate it into English. And they, even when they bring the game to say pitch to us at Essen, they'll already have an English version. And then all we have to do really is take those art files and add our UPC and our logo and just do a quick run through of the rulebook to make sure there's nothing, you know, totally strange or out there about it to uh, to translate it into English. But we sometimes have to localize it too. There was a, a game that we did out of um, Japan a couple of years ago. It was uh, it's called Rooster Rush by okay. Stefan Bauza. Yeah, very popular designer. But um, the name of the game was called Gaijin Dash, and it was all about uh, foreigners in China and Japan not looking left instead of right and getting run over by cars. <laughs> Totally fine for Japan and their non-politically correct environment, but I, the game is really fun, but it didn't work very well for our market. I'm like, I'm not going to have a game. Line. So we changed it to called Rooster Rush. And it's kind of like, why did the chicken cross the road and the chickens are getting hit by traffic? It's not quite as as brutal as, you know, tourists getting hit by, by cars. So we had That's to awesome. localize that and change the theme a bit. So 
we just take a look at whatever game it is and usually we'll just keep it as it is but if need to we'll make changes too and i was always curious so when you get these art files um do you send them to your do you, do you have your manufacturing plants uh printed or do you use the manufacturing plant of the original that did the original game if you're licensing a game you're really at the mercy of what the licensee licensor the person who's licensing it to you wants so hmm. some of them are like look we want you to produce it with our factory we're going to control the files you tell us what's changed we'll change it we're not even going to give you the art files we don't want no chance of you stealing our game or printing it on the side or i don't know whatever so some of them will do that and some will just be like we don't care we just want our licensing fee you can print it with us and here's the price or you can take it to your own factory if you want it just depends but generally we just stick with theirs unless there's a compelling reason not to like if our price is much cheaper than theirs do you usually get it quoted out just to do that comparison yeah. to say yeah and a lot of times I've actually had a lot of licenses. I won't name companies, but I've had them where they give me a quote. And I actually lived in China for six years and I speak Mandarin. My wife's Chinese mm -hmm. and I deal directly with factories all the time. So I can look at a game and get pretty close to what I think it ought to be. And I quite often will go to the comp to the factory and see what it would cost me and then be like, okay, well, that means if I can produce it for five bucks and they're charging me eight, that means I'm paying like a 60% margin in there just to pay them a licensing fee. Um, and yeah, a lot of times too, their, their licensing fee basically. Yeah. Right? And so I'm like, look, I'd rather just print it at my company, pay you the $3. If you're going to, if you're going to bleed me for this, I, I don't know what you're charging in your factory, but my factory can do it for five. So take it or leave it. But I would rather pay, print with my factory and have some more autonomy on it. But what's funny too, is a lot of times I ask them where they're printing it and they'll tell me I know most of the factories over there. Yeah. So I'll call the factory owner up and go, Hey, how much is this game costing you? <laughs> and they're like, Oh, we're charging them 425. I'm like, Holy cow. <laughs> And then they're telling me, oh, the manufacturing cost is six. I can't call them out on the lie, but it gives me some negotiating power to know what's up. Because I know most of the factories over there. I've lived uh, really close to a lot of the more popular ones. I've worked with most of them over the years. So, Had uh, you published games before you went over there? In, in, no, in I moved over there in 2011. Okay. I, I sold my house and cars and moved over with my wife and kids and lived from 2011 to 2017 in Suzhou, China, just west of Shanghai, where there's a lot of game publishers. So Watts Games... Um, Magic, uh, Magic Craft, uh, Meja Publishing, um, Long Pack, they're all over there in Shanghai yeah. area. Magic was, just moved. But. Was there surprises to you when you started kind of digging into the actual cost of some of this stuff? Was it like, whoa, like I. It was shocking to me how much third party markup companies are charging people to do their games for them. I won't name any company names, but yeah, there's a lot of them where they're taking the factory price from the factory, marking it up 25% and passing it on to their customer, not even changing the quote except for the numbers. Like, yeah. and they're just going back and forth as a go between. And that's what I hate seeing is that kind of thing. So, yeah. but it was crazy how much I could save. When I first went over there, my price on Dead Man's Draw from the time I went over there until now has dropped by 50% off the wow. direct manufacturing costs from what I was paying to what I'm paying now. And I know lots of companies who've done that, switching over to, to other factories direct, directly instead of third-party resellers. And most of these factories as well will go and broker the different components for the game as well, right? So they'll talk to the guy who's like one street over whose factory maybe makes plastic yeah. miniatures. And so yeah. they can say, okay, hey, I need this price and they'll negotiate together to kind of you know, barter yeah. back and forth based on components and so forth as well, right? Sure, yeah. So like uh, one of my main factories, we were doing wooden components and I went right to this place in China that does all the wooden poise for all of China. It's not like the US where everything's spread out. For some reason, all the competitors congregate in the same area. I guess they figure yeah. all their buyers are coming and they're going to shop around. But I went there and negotiated what I thought was a good price. And then I asked my game manufacturing company, hey, how much to do these tokens? And he was like 30% cheaper going to the same factory. I'm yeah. Like, how did you do that? And he's like, you got to understand, I'm bringing the volume of all my games with me. The buying power I have versus what you have is way different. So even adding a third party in the middle, it's still cheaper for me to buy my little wooden component accessories from a factory that makes games and bundle it with his 
tokens rather than go directly to the factory that's still going to be making my tokens just at a cheaper price to him than to me. Yeah. So, I always crazy. tell people uh, that they come and ask, Hey, who should I, you know, who, who do you use for your manufacturing? And I say, well, it, it always changes because I'm, I don't lock into one company. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to quote this out to three or four different, co- they're all yep. going to be based out of China, but I'm going to, I'm going to quote it to four <laughs> different companies and then I'm going to let them bid against each other and I'm going to get the best price. But if I just stick with one, well, they might give you a good price in one game, but the next game mm-hmm. you might not get the good price, right? So it's 100%. important to make sure you're always, you know, quoting out. And, I always uh, quote three or four, and there's usually ends up being yeah. one or two. But I honestly think some of the problem is that companies don't know how to quote. Like I, Dead Man's Draw, I'm convinced that they were selling it to me for three years below their cost. Yeah. They finally came back and go, "Oh, we're charging too little for this game." I'm like, yeah, don't I know it? But <laughs> but then sometimes they charge way too much. You know, like the recent game I got is going to cost me four dollars and eighty cents a unit. Well, one factory charged me was charging seven dollars a unit. One was charging eleven a unit. Yeah. And then the one I went with is 480. It's the same exact game, just different ways of pricing, I guess. So I always get different. And usually you can kind of tell, but man, you never know until you get the quote. You never know what's going to come in. Yeah, exactly. So what do you, what's the next on the deck? So after kind of poetry slam is you're obviously probably going to sell out all this, uh, all these uh, available pledges. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have another game coming or what's yeah, kind of next? We, on the have, deck for you guys? we have three more products we're working on tentatively. One, we haven't signed, we haven't quite signed the agreement. We're going to sign it this week with um, lifestyle games for another game from them. Yeah. with Imperial Publishing, another game. We did with them, Red Outpost did really well for us on Kickstarter. I think it did 175 grand or something. Yeah. So uh, it did really well. We're, we have another game from them that we really, really like and we're excited about. Um, so we're going to launch that here probably in the next month or so. And as soon as we get the contract signed, and then we have, uh, we'll do another Crokinole Kickstarter for Mayday here coming up pretty soon. And then we're also tentatively planning a 10 year anniversary Dead Man's Draw limited edition 10 version, which we haven't, we, we want to kind of celebrate that game coming up on 10 years here that we've had. So it's one of our evergreens that continues to sell well, but we have a couple other projects in the works too. So never a dull moment. I'm sure it, yeah. uh, I, I don't know how you even had time to, to, to kind of set aside for this podcast. I mean, you yeah. guys got a lot going on. Yeah. It's been really crazy. It's, it's a crazy year for us. One interesting little caveat I'll tell you about is the, yeah. when the um, pandemic hit, a lot of our distributors in the U S shut down. Mm-hmm. And so our sales, they just stopped paying their invoices from one day to the next. So, but then all the stores that they were selling to also stopped selling because they were all shut down too. So for like three months, there was nobody buying anything of us through distribution. Yeah. So we started selling more actively on our website and on Amazon. And then suddenly our sales actually took off. Well, instead of selling at 60% off retail to distributors, we're selling it close to hundred percent to direct to customers. Yeah. So our margins went up. So like last year was our best year ever. It was crazy. The, the crokinole, the $350,000 crokinole didn't hurt for sure, but <laughs> Uh, the whole thing was, it was crazy because in the middle of the pandemic, I think people just liked playing games. They were more at home with their family, looking for creative yeah. things to do inside. And so for us, it was our best year by a lot. So it was really crazy. Yeah, it's certainly been a big shift in the industry and it'll be interesting to see kind of where it shakes out uh, even a year from now, you know, once everybody's vaccinated yeah. and we start getting back to some semblance of uh, normalcy. Uh, I, yeah. I think that this is uh probably going to change the industry permanently. Uh, and uh, it, it's always interesting to see disruptors like this, how, how it does impact uh, certain industries. And this one clearly hasn't uh, dampened people's interest in, in playing games. No. Uh, it's just, you know, new paths on actually getting the games to those end users, which is kind yeah, of the publishers uh, have to so. adapt to how those people want to buy their games or else they're yeah. going to die too. So yeah, absolutely. Seth, it has been awesome to have you on the podcast. I appreciate your time. All the yeah. best on Poetry Slam. I know it's going to go really well for you guys. And I look forward to seeing your next campaigns. Okay. Well, thank you a lot so much for having me on here. It's always no good worries. to 
hear from you guys. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.